Lord, as we consider your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, <clears throat> soften our hearts, Lord. Guide what is said, guide what is heard. Lord, may we hear you speak to us, each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I had intended on preaching on something different this week, but a few things during the week, all through the week, just kept pointing me, nudging me in a direction to, to preach on something different instead. So, the title this morning is Repentance is More Than Words. You know the saying, actions speak louder than words. <clears throat> well, Jesus once spoke about the importance of not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, as they say. He once told a parable to the chief priests and elders who had confronted him, who had questioned him, and they were clearly opposing him. He says, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go, he said. Yes, sir, I'll do that. I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. And then Jesus explained the meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. The second son wanted to give the impression that he would do the father's will. While he had no intention or inclination to actually do it. And there are many ways in which we can give the same impression as well of doing the work of God in heaven. But in reality we aren't. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to these religious leaders. And it's worth noting that Jesus is gentle with them. He's not verbally just giving them all guns blazing in a sense. He's not condemning them. He's trying to actually show them in a gentle but firm way that they have a problem with sin. They have a problem in their hearts. They need to turn to him. There are many ways in which we can be like the, the son who says, yes, I'll do that, but had no intention of really. It was more more focused on giving the good impression than actually doing what his father wanted. And one very common way is to be part of the religious establishment. To have the robes of being a religious leader as they were when they were coming to Jesus. To have the position in the church, in the, in the community of being a religious leader. If you've got that position, well, you're obviously close to God, people would assume. It's possible to give the appearance and yet not to have the reality. Today, it can be the same for us. We're going to church. We might have a Bible under our arm. We might, we might have the reputation for being a Christian at work or in our family. And sometimes we can take the name of the Lord in vain. 
but we're not actually living it out as much as we ought to. If we're more concerned with what others think than than obeying that voice of the Spirit in our heads, in our hearts, that says this is the way you ought to walk, then there's something wrong. There's a big question mark as to sometimes are we being obedient as believers or if that's the pattern of our lives, there's a big question mark. Are we believers at all? Are we Christians at all? Are we followers of Jesus at all? And there are many people today in churches who have the reputation outwardly but not inwardly before God. That was what these religious leaders were like. They had the reputation and Jesus was a challenge. Jesus was annoying them. They just wanted to have the outward appearance and not to be challenged by the that annoying thing about obedience. They were saying, look at us. We're doing the will of God. We're the religious leaders. But they were more like that son who gave a good impression but didn't do the will of God of the Father. In contrast, the corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes who had the worst of reputations, as Jesus describes them, they were the ones who were actually turning to God. They had no reputation to hide behind. They had nothing to lose in terms of what people thought of them. Even though they were like the first son who disobeyed, they were known for disobeying. They were turning to Jesus in great numbers. They were turning away from their old life and they were turning to God. They were turning to a life of holiness before him. And in this parable, both sons are sinners. One outwardly and the other inwardly. But only one of them actually turns and repents and does the will of the Father. One group is intent on denying that they are sinners and keeping up appearances. The other group of people, like the son who initially said no, but then did it. They're not as concerned with appearances. Like the person who spends money they don't have to give others the impression that they're rich. Some people will give the impression that, yeah, we're doing God's will, but there's no substance behind it. Some people can be living on credit in terms of spending, but other people, other Christians and people from other religions especially can can be living on credit as well. They've got the credit for appearing godly, but they don't have anything to back it up. Sometimes it's not easy to spot the difference. But there are some telltale signs that we can see that characterize those who are godly, who are following the Lord. And some such signs are a desire to be humble, desire to to do God's will even when other people don't notice a desire to be in God's word a desire to pray people were turning to God the sinners were turning to God 
at the preaching of Jesus and people are turning to God. And yet too often in churches we find that there's a sort of a middle class respectability that says, you don't fit in here. And in churches like that, that are keen on giving a good impression that, well, nobody ever does anything wrong in our church. You begin to wonder, do they actually know what grace is? Do they not realize that they have been sinners too? Are they not welcoming of people who have been openly sinful, like that first son who said no and then repented? Do they understand what church is meant to be about at all? Instead, they try to convince themselves that they have no need for repentance. And people who do repent from very ungodly backgrounds have got no place with them. They're respectable people. That's not what church is. Church is not about being respectable, about keeping up appearances. Church is for sinners who are being sanctified, who will be glorified one day when Christ returns. What Jesus is teaching is that we need to be repentant. We need to have repentance. The two words repent and repentance in the New Testament are very clear in their meaning. They mean to turn around with a comprehensive change of attitude, a change of direction, which affects our whole being. They're different from another word, which is close, but which is not quite a turning around but simply a regret for what has happened. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. True repentance leads to change, to following Jesus. As he said, you will know them by their fruit, the way they live. True repentance produces change contrast worldly regret doesn't change lives doesn't change people's attitudes it doesn't change people's relationship with God the worldly regret that Judas had can be read in Matthew 27 then when Judas Jesus' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders Worldly regret is ashamed at being found out. It says the right thing to give the right impression, but it regrets being found out if people find out. It doesn't regret what it did. It regrets the implications. It regrets having been found out. As people say, that well, there's been a massive cultural shift, and while well, still shifting in the West, from what used to be a guilt culture to a shame culture. 100 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, people were concerned with doing the right thing. If people did the wrong thing, they would confess. They were more concerned with about being guilty and being forgiven than about how things looked. You can see it clearly in the, in the political realm where politicians, if they had done wrong, they would they would confess it and I've done wrong and resign. Now, it's all about appearances. If 
how can I spin this so it doesn't look too bad so I don't have to... They don't care about the rights and wrongs of what they've done. They're just concerned, can I get away with it? Worldly regret is more concerned with being caught for doing wrong than being guilty for doing wrong. Worldly regret is about shame. Godly sorrow is about having done wrong. It's about guilt. And so when people who are found out, they try and justify themselves. They're in denial. They try and make excuses. They try and blame others. They try and change the subject. It wasn't really as bad as you make out, they say. In contrast, godly repentance is different. When God points the finger on our sin, when we humbly accept, like David did in Psalm 51, we accept the whole of what he says. We accept his verdict. David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And you will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. Godly repentance doesn't hold back. It says, yes, God, you're right. When we confess our sins to God, somebody once said, we're not telling him something he didn't know. We're just agreeing with him. And that's what David is doing here. He confesses his sin. He agrees with God and he's turning in his heart. He's turned in his heart away from that. He accepts God's assessment that he has sinned. And he doesn't make excuses. He has humbled himself. And humbling ourselves is the first step towards receiving God's grace and his mercy. David continues, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. David was repentant in his heart and was humble in his mind. And he was fully committed to doing God's will. He wasn't just sorry for having been found out. At the right time when Nathan confronted him, his conscience had got to him, his guilt was too heavy for him. He knew he had done wrong. And the Spirit had worked on him and he confessed his sin. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit, a loyal spirit within me. It's not as though God makes it difficult for us. It's not as though God says, right, this is what you've got to do and you're on your own. He gives us the grace we need. He calls us to come to him using language from the Old Testament, from places which would be very barren, where you can't find water so easily. He says, come, I will give you water freely. Talking about the Holy Spirit. James says he gives grace generously. But as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the pride, but when we humble ourselves, he gives grace, grace upon grace. Gavin Ortland writes, <coughs> The gospel alone can free us for honesty, ownership, and admission. Because the gospel alone destroys the sting and judgment associated with criticism. The gospel takes away the fear that drives <coughs> defensiveness and frees us to openly admit our shortcomings. The gospel says, in the place of your deepest failure and shame, you're loved most tenderly. The gospel says, your deepest fears were already borne by your Savior. The gospel says, your sins are exposed and dealt with at the cross. The battle is already over. God doesn't call us to try again, and this time you better do better, when we have no different strength, when we have no more help than we had the first time. He calls us to come to him. He gives us the grace, the help that we need. Paul writes about a situation in in Corinth where he had written a strong letter to the church because there was a serious situation and he was pleased that they had turned around, they had dealt with things properly, they had repented. Then he writes in 2 Corinthians, Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal and such a readiness to punish wrong, you showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Godly repentance results in change and in blessing. Godly repentance is concerned with a changed life, not just avoiding the consequences. It's concerned more with being different than appearing different. Repentance is turning from sin and turning towards God. It means turning from selfishness, from pride, from greed, from sexual immorality, from harming others, from doing wrong against God in various different ways. It even means turning from trying to be good without God, as the American Humanist Society has their motto. It means turning from a life of living without God to a life of living with God, living for God. Remorse is not repentance, but godly sorrow, sorrow for having offended God, sorrow for having done such wrong, goes hand in hand with repentance. One of the hallmarks of revival is that when the Spirit of God comes down on a community, on a church, on a people, they're not immediately up praising and 
joyfully worshipping the Lord, the first thing that tends to happen is after they've been praying, which is associated with before revival happens, but when revival happens, the first thing that tends to happen is that people are burdened with the, the enormity of their sin. Unbelievers as well as Christians. We're going along, we think everything's fine, and then the Spirit comes, a sense of awe descends, a sense of the glory of God, and we realize we're not as fine as we thought we were. And a sense of guilt, a sense of sorrow, a sense of remorse fills the people. And then the cross comes to our minds. Once we're on our knees and tears at our guilt, the Lord brings the cross to our minds and we see that our, our sin, all that sin that is so heavily laid upon us, was taken by the Lord on the cross. And when we realize that we are free, we rejoice and we thank God. And our rejoicing of God is not simply because his presence is with us, but because we realize more and more how much he has done for us. How glorious he is, how sinless he is, and how much more sinful we were than we thought we were. And God is patient with us, each one of us, especially for those who think they're good enough and they don't need God. In Romans 2, after discussing the situation of the, the openly ungodly, the people who are openly sinful and know it and don't care. Paul tackles the, the situation of good people, those who think they're upright, those who think they're good. He says, listen, I know you can point the finger at them. You can point the finger at what they do, which is wrong, but you do the same things which are wrong, except not to the same extent. So you're pointing the finger at yourself as well. You know they're guilty. You can point to your own life and the guilt in your own life too. Can't you see that it's not just them who are guilty, but you're guilty as well, and yet God's been patient with you. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Repentance, although, is never alone. It's always accompanied by faith. Trust in the Lord. We turn away from sin, we turn towards God. We turn towards him through faith in Jesus. Jesus commands us to repent and believe. In fact, his ministry was characterized by that. At the start of Mark's gospel, we're told that as Jesus preached, he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a difficult word for many people. It's not one that people like to hear. It's not one that unbelievers like to hear. It's not one that believers like to hear as much as we ought to. When we talk to people about forgiveness, about the joy of the Lord, about the peace of God, the peace of mind that comes through trusting in Jesus, these are all positive things that they welcome. 
But why don't people welcome the idea that we have to repent? Surely that's a good thing. Surely living a more godly life, being more holy, being less sinful, surely that's a good thing. Surely they would welcome that as much as receiving the peace and joy of God into their hearts. The reason people don't like talk about repentance is because really, as John 3.19 tells us, people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. People don't like being challenged because they love their sin too much. They're too comfortable with it. They don't like changing. People like being forgiven as long as it doesn't cost much. People want on the one hand to be forgiven and yet to keep on doing the same things. But how can you want to be forgiven for things that you've done and yet want at the same time to continue doing the same things? You can't really want forgiveness unless you have repentance as well. You can't seek forgiveness for what you've done unless you don't want to do the things you've done anymore. The gospel isn't just come to Jesus and you'll be blessed and forgiven and things will go better in your life. The gospel is come to Jesus and you will be a new person. You will be transformed. You will be sanctified. And Jesus hasn't come to try and encourage those who are thinking that they're self-righteous. I've come not to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Jesus has come, and anyone who has their, a sense of their need to be forgiven, he welcomes with open arms. Like that passage at the start that, that we read, Jesus was speaking to religious leaders who didn't want to repent. And he was saying, you think you're okay, but you're not. But those who know they're not okay, when they repent and turn to me in their droves, they are accepted. If we were to, to look at our own lives and to, to consider, if God was to come and give us a counselling session one-on-one and he was to talk through how we live, what would he be saying to us? What would he be saying to you? What would he be saying to me? What would we need to change? We might say, okay, well, there's this little thing here, this little tiny thing that I need to change. I feel comfortable with changing that. But that can sometimes be a distraction technique when there's this massive thing, the elephant in the room in our lives, in a sense, that needs to change first. What is the elephant in the room in our lives that needs to change? Is there something that we need to repent of ourselves? What's stopping us from living the way we ought to before Jesus? The Christian life following Jesus, as our series is titled, is a life of repenting and believing, of turning from sin and walking with the Lord. And it's a way of life. It's not just something we do when we come to faith. It's a way of life. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we ought to ask for forgiveness each day. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven others. 
repentance and forgiveness is a daily activity, whether to a small degree or a large degree. And church is for people who have been forgiven, people who are repenting, people who know that they want to keep continuing to be more and more like Jesus, less and less like the way they used to be. Church is a group of forgiven people who worship God and are becoming more like Jesus day by day, year by year. It doesn't matter how much we've done wrong, whether it's small scale stuff or whether it's massive things, whether it's murder, whether it's abuse or whether it's gossip or the church is a place for everyone who's turned from whatever it is. We're all in the same boat and if it wasn't for the grace of God, who knows, we might have been doing far worse than the worst of other people that we can think of. As long as people are genuinely repentant, there's a place in the church for them. But there's no place for unrepentant sinners in church. Jesus died on the cross. Sin is serious. But it is finished. The price is paid. He simply asks us to come to receive the forgiveness that is there. To, to know the joy of being forgiven. To know the, the blessing of walking with the Lord. Of walking in the Spirit. Of humbling ourselves. Of turning away from the life of sin. Of turning towards God and being blessed. If we need to turn to him now for the first time, let's turn to him. Simply turn away, commit to turn away from a life without living the way God wants. A life of sin, whether it's respectable sins or very unrespectable sins. Turning away from that and turning towards God. And we will know the joy of our salvation. As David says in Psalm fifty-one, twelve, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Repentance is a joyful thing. It brings us into a joyful position with God. Instead of feeling carried down and bowed down with guilt, we stand before God cleansed, righteous, in good standing with him, in joyful relationship with him. Are we missing out on that joy? Let's turn to God. Face up to whatever it is we need to. And the peace of God will, will invade our lives, will dominate our thoughts, will keep our hearts and minds, and we will have the, the, the full face of the, the Father shining towards us and the strength of the Spirit within us. Walking that repentant life, that joyful life of repentance, through faith in Jesus is a foretaste of what life will be when the Lord comes again the grace of God the blessings he gives the things he says we must do are all for our good all for our blessing the only reason we don't want to do it is because we love sin too much and it's never done us any good instead let's love God and let's follow him and praise God he calls us not only to repentance, but he has provided the way for us.
to be able to do so because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we are so conscious that, that you're holy. Lord, and, and, and we, Lord, if it wasn't for your grace working in our lives, we would be so much more unholy than we've even been. The heart is so desperately wicked, who can understand it? Lord, forgive us for the inclination of our hearts. Forgive us for the the things our hearts have thought. Forgive us for the things that we have done. Lord, as we turn towards you, we pray that, that we will stay close with you. That we will stay close to the cross. That we will walk closely with you. That we will not... We will not do harm to the Holy Spirit. We will not grieve the Holy Spirit by how we live. Lord, help us to give to give glory to you. Help us to find joy in you. And Lord, help us to be lights in a dark place. Help us, Lord, not to take your name in vain. Help us, Lord, to know your presence and your power at work within us and your joy in our hearts as we walk closely with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.